Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and we're recording in the basement of Whitehall here on the Midtown campus. And today we're talking with experts on ticks, specifically the ticks that carry Lyme disease. We have Dr. Nita Connolly, professor of biology at WestCon. Dr. Rada Krell, coordinator for the university's tick management study, and Jennifer Reed, director of a tick education program in Ridgefield called BLAST. It's tick season in Connecticut, and we're going to talk about how not to get bit. So we're doing this podcast in early May. It happens to be May is a national and Connecticut uh, what is it, Lyme Disease Month or Tick Disease Month? I can't remember what you just said. Lyme Awareness Month. Lyme Awareness Month. And one reason for that is that all the tick babies come out now. Is that right? Yes. Is that what you call them, tick babies? No. <laughs> we call them the nymph stage of oh, okay. the black-legged tick. And what happens when the nymph stage comes out? Well, the nymph stage, like all stages of the tick that transmits Lyme disease, uh, they feed on blood. Uh, they feed on all sorts of animals, including humans, and they can transmit not only the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, but several other different disease-causing agents. They're also very tiny, and they're active during the time of year that we are active and spending time outdoors. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a public health concern. Sure. And these nymphs look like adult ticks, just smaller, right? They look like adult ticks, but smaller, and they're about the size of a poppy seed. Right. Um, so we always mention that because they're hard to find. You have to really look and make sure you are not uh, don't have any ticks on you. Right? That's a good idea, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems to me like every season is tick season. You know, I had a dog that would bring in ticks during the winter. Snow would be on the ground. Is that true, or is that just my imagination? They always have to be worried about ticks. Yeah, absolutely. um, I think people are aware that the spring and summer brings this tiny stage of tick, but the reality is that uh, the deer tick, also known as the black-legged tick, is really active throughout the whole year, and including the winter when the temperatures are above freezing. Um, And so really we need to be vigilant in practicing prevention uh, all year long. Absolutely. So the, at WestCon, you, Nita, have been doing a tick research for a long time, and um, uh, Rada has joined you and worked, started working with you, and Jennifer works on a, a project uh, called Blast down in Ridgefield. But the, um, pretty soon you and students will be all going out and measuring ticks, right? Or how many there are out in the field? Yes. Yeah, so. Since I came to Western in 2011, we uh, have been monitoring the nymph stage ticks uh, in Western Connecticut. So we sample the ticks, that is we go out and collect them every week uh, from the beginning of May until the beginning of August. And uh, in fact, we'll be starting our monitoring this year, but we do like to see what uh, the ticks are doing, when they're coming out, how abundant they are. Uh, and so we can see the differences year to year. Um, and now with uh, the concerns about uh, climate change, you know, we can then see if the ticks might start to come out sooner than they, they used to. Mm-hmm. So Rita, I'd like to just interrupt here and uh, get this out of the way. Uh, Nita, 
uh, I have always said is a, a nationally recognized expert on ticks and she always says no no we shouldn't say that but she did just get this uh, recognition that she won't talk about but you can right about uh... yeah so it's as I'm an entomologist mm-hmm. and as an entomologist for a long time we've been trying to have a greater presence at the federal level in terms of when there's legislation that comes up that has something to do with entomology. Often in the past, um, for example, a a couple years ago, there was a a pollinator initiative, and there were no entomologists (laughs) represented when when that initiative came up. And so we're really fortunate that now entomologists are being recognized and are being invited to the table. And in this case, um, Nita was invited to be a part of this Health and Human Services committee to um, to help advise and give advice on what we currently know about tick management and prevention and how policy could potentially be developed to, to help promote better prevention efforts. Yeah. So it's um, really, in, in recent memory, the first time we've had entomologists at the table at that level. So it's, it's great for what's going on in terms of tick management, and it's great for Western as well that we have a nationally recognized person yeah. um, being, being part of that. Are you excited mm-hmm. about that meeting? Yes. <laughs> the, so it's been an interesting process, <laughs> and and uh, and and luckily they've wrapped up fairly recently, which um, a, a big part of it, mm-hmm. which uh, works well with needing to be more engaged with the ticks out in the field <laughs> and what's going to be going on in the lab. That's great. Do you have to go to Washington for that? No, we have been meeting via conference call. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's several subcommittees. I'm on the disease vectors surveillance and prevention subcommittee. Uh, and so we've been able to do our work remotely, which has been great. And now the working group will take what we've put forth and create their own recommendations and their report for the HHS secretary and for Congress. Mm-hmm. So we look forward to seeing how that comes out in the end and uh, really it's exciting to be part of you know the conversation to think about what the future federal priorities regarding tick-borne diseases will be so it's exciting to be part of that and are they respectful of you as an entomologist? Have they uh, enjoyed having you there and recognized that you should have been there for a long time? <laughs> I, you know, you'd have to ask them. There's several entomologists in our group, and it's been a really um, great experience to have so many people come to the table and bring different types of expertise from, you know, molecular biology to tick ecology to uh, human disease surveillance uh, aspects. So it's been it's mm-hmm. been really nice to have the multiple disciplines and in addition to having scientists and public health officials in the group we also have a number of patient advocates uh, people whose lives have been affected by tick-borne disease and who have been working within their own communities and nationwide really to um, promote uh, prevention uh, and talk about topics uh, related to the surveillance of of tick-borne illness so it's been really really a great experience that is great. In Connecticut, I think that people are aware, have been aware of tick-borne disease, Lyme disease, especially for a long time. But the rest of the country was uh, is just kind of getting on board, or a lot of the rest of the country, right? It's uh, on the West Coast. They didn't know about Lyme disease 10 years ago, 
I don't think. Well, so there is Lyme disease on the West Coast, and uh, the tick that transmits Lyme disease is a little bit, it's different, than some different species than the one that's here, but uh, the way people get exposed uh, in the West Coast tends to be a little bit different than it is here in the Northeast, where as we in the Northeast are often exposed in our own backyards, exposure uh, out west tends to be a little more as a result of recreational activities. Uh, Not to say we can't be exposed via recreation here uh, in the Northeast, but we also, particularly here in Connecticut, we have carved out our homes to be in these fragmented forested landscapes, and so that really increases our chances of meeting Mm -hmm. uh, a tick that could transmit a disease agent. So uh, just for our listeners to be clear, uh, Nita and Rada work on ticks. They aren't Lyme disease experts, right? You do, you talk about the, or you research uh, how ticks live, how they um, interact with people, and as a consequence then, how they might transmit disease. Is that a good uh, explanation of that, what you look at? So, yeah, I think so. I think the work that we do really lies at the crosswords. Crosswords, no, not crosswords. Crossroads <laughs> of where um, people meet ticks, so in the environment, and also um, where uh, we try to understand how humans behave, how they would either do something that would prevent them from being bitten by a tick, or if they wouldn't do something that would prevent them from being bitten by a tick. And if they won't do it, we're trying to also understand why. So we're kind of at this ecology meets human behavior place. And um, and it's been great to have Rita join us. So her expertise really came from an agricultural entomology side. And so she's been able to bring this pest management uh, perspective from a, a different field of entomology and help us apply it in uh, the medical entomology setting, which has been really valuable for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been extremely interesting for me to to have humans as a part of the research in some way because my past work with plants, the plants don't ask you questions and they don't move. <laughs> so um, I, I worked with plants and, and pathogens or disease agents that infect plants. So uh, that kind of aspect of an arthropod or an insect that's transmitting a disease agent to plants, um, that there's some similarities with, with that in, in ticks and transmitting disease agents to humans, but the, the human element is very different because again, you have um, essentially you're working with an animal, humans, that um, makes decisions about where it's going to spend time and per- potentially has control over how it's protecting, how, how we're protecting ourselves against ticks. So um, it's been fascinating and, um, and very fulfilling to get involved in that, that part of research, especially living here in Connecticut <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and being involved. And yeah, unfortunately, we've, we don't yet have a way to control what people do. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you, what do you do about that? Say, for instance, I uh, work out in my yard all the time. I hike with my family. I've never gotten, um, uh, as far as I know, I've never gotten Lyme disease or any of the other diseases. So I pretty much think that I'm immune and um, don't have to protect myself. Well, <laughs> here's where I'll put in my pitch for the BLAST program. Um, Ten years ago, I had the pleasure of uh, Nita contacting me and working with me to develop a program through the Ridgefield Health Department, uh, the BLAST program. And 
what Nita shared was the top research uh, points that she had uncovered that really uh, were going to keep people safe. We know there's dozens of things you can do. There's a huge toolbox, but what, um, what are people really going to be able to incorporate into their daily lives? So the BLAST program distilled the message down to a quick, simple uh, daily reminder. The B is to bathe or shower within two hours of outdoor activity, come in, take off those clothes that might still have a tick on them, throw them in a hot dryer for high heat for 10 minutes and get yourself into a shower. Uh, you can wash off ticks that haven't attached. Uh, the L is to look yourself over while you're in that shower. Look and see if you have any ticks on you or possibly even a rash developing that mm. you might not have noticed. The A is to apply repellents, and there are some for your skin and some for your clothing. There are different products, and through the BLAST program, we try to help people make those decisions uh, that they feel work best for their family. Which products really work against ticks, and uh, which ones are you comfortable you know, using in, in what setting? The S reminds everyone that spraying the yard has been proven to be um, show some measurable uh, improvement in reducing tick numbers on your property. Again, different ways to apply, different products, and that's largely what we're looking at through our, our latest project is how to help people uh, maintain as uh, tick-free a yard as possible. And then T is a reminder to treat everyone's pets uh, with veterinarian-recommended products to really understand that indoor-outdoor pets are going to be carrying ticks into the house, that pet owners are more uh, likely to encounter ticks, and that having a pet sleep with you on your bed or sit <laughs> on your couch uh, when they first come in from outdoors is probably not the safest, wisest uh, decision. So we just, you know, uh, go to many health fairs, many uh, events in the community with our display, our teaching tools, and this uh, five-point reminder, and hopefully uh, can help folks take those steps, and then we go over early symptoms, because we know these ticks are small. It's so hard to spot them on the body. We teach them where to look, because they hide in those moist uh, uh, you know, places where they won't be spotted. Uh, but what are those early symptoms? Mm -hmm. Because clearly these illnesses, all the tick-borne illnesses, when you catch them quickly, um, recovery is so much uh, more successful, and that's an important point. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's careful, they could or thoughtful, they can um, highly increase their chances of not being getting a tick-borne disease, right? I mean, I, you can go through uh, all year without getting sick if you take care of yourself and um, uh, don't let your dog sleep on your bed, which I would never do anyway. But uh, <laughs> he, um, uh, is, is that what you absolutely? Is that true? Absolutely. You know, no, nothing's a hundred percent guarantee, but we like to think that. The, the wider variety of measures that you take, and we want you to start with the basics, but um, the more you understand, the more you know about both tick behavior, about where ticks live in your property or in the woods, um, some of the products that are available, uh, you know, product uh, clothing that's treated with repellent that can kill ticks that get on you or your camping gear. There's so many different measures that the more you become interested and are willing to do, the safer uh, you and your family, family will be. Uh, and as Nita said, you don't have to leave your property. So many people say, well, I really do you know, think of all these things when I go camping or I send my child to camp. And we say, great, but you need to really think about some of the measures and doing your great tick checks in your shower every day because 
Um, I've, I've been doing this for many years, as have Anita and Rada, and we hear so many stories. Folks say, I simply walked to the mailbox. I just you know, went out to water my flowers, and I came in, and there was a tick on me. So it's those little moments where you're not being particularly thoughtful about it when you will mm-hmm. have a tick attachment and just be unaware. Mm-hmm. Um, just the simple measure of coming in after outdoor activity and taking off your clothing and putting it into that high heat dryer for 10 minutes instead of sitting down to have uh, your lunch because that tick might be still walking on your clothing mm-hmm. and you could save yourself from it reaching your skin. Uh, we talk about to people about how to dress, how to um, you know, have as much of their skin covered as possible, closed-toe shoes for when they go out into the yard, all those little tips help and Mm -hmm. um, I find I've been going to health fairs with the BLAST program for about 10 years now and I have a lot of repeat visitors and Mm -hmm. they're very proud of themselves you know they say well you know I'm doing this and this what could I do for this uh, you know situation and uh, it's nothing's overnight it's been a, a learning process I think at least in the Fairfield County area where we work the most, uh, with all of our uh, collaboration uh, with Nita, Rada, and all the wonderful partners we have uh, with the health, health departments trying to get the message out, people are very aware that they need to be on their guard, they need to be doing something. Um, the questions now are specifics. Um, they want to know exactly you know, what is most effective. We're, da- we're really drilling down into, um, we got it, this is important, this is serious. It's a year-round problem for us and our pets. Um, what specifically do we do that will make a difference? So it's that level of education uh, that we're at now, which I find quite exciting. We're not mm-hmm. saying Lyme is a problem. We're saying, you ready to learn more? Here we are. We're right. going to do something neat. So it's not just people who got sick, who have been sick, who are interested. It's uh, more of a general population. Absolutely. No, I will tell you that people who've been sick, and I meet many of them. I mean, in Richfield, we run two support groups a month. We have a lot of educational programming. There is no um, uh, slowdown in the number of people coming down with serious Mm. illness. Mm. But those folks are very adept at prevention. They have learned their lesson. Um, We're preaching to the choir when we talk to those groups. They get it. We're really trying to reach young families, particularly folks new to town, new to our Mm -hmm. communities, coming in with corporations. They're from other countries, other states. Mm -hmm. And it's a constant flow. Um, Mm -hmm. When folks say to me, oh, everyone in Connecticut knows about Lyme, uh, I say, oh, don't, please don't think that. I go to health fairs and community events all over the state of Connecticut. Is Fairfield County fairly well educated? Yes, unless you're a newcomer, and we have many of them. But there are communities all over the state uh, where the message has just not penetrated. Hmm. And uh, we we have to be diligent. We cannot uh, make assumptions that just because we were number one in 1975, uh, we've got it down. Look look at the number of folks that come in here uh, as newcomers. Mm -hmm. We give all of our information packets to our welcome uh, woman who, mm-hmm. who goes through the communities, personal touch, and she delivers our packets. We, we are constantly at our community events, uh, and folks who come up to us say, we would not have known. Yeah. Uh, we just got here mm-hmm. you know, three months ago. We would not have known if you hadn't told us. So, so the first uh, diagnosed or diagnosis of Lyme disease was in 1975. Were people not getting Lyme disease before, or was it just not diagnosed, or what mm-hmm. was that? Well, I think so that we know that tick has been around for a long, long time. And the uh, the way it became recognized was that there was a cluster of young people in the Lyme, old Lyme area. 
of Connecticut uh, that were coming down with what they were diagnosing as a juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, mm. which is very unusual and alarming. Uh, and so it was this cluster of cases that really brought the question to the forefront of what is going on here, which led to the investigation, which then led to the you know, conclusion that it was a tick that was biting people and causing illness. Now, were there cases prior to the 70s? Probably. Uh, the tick has been here. And really what has happened, uh, particularly in the northeastern United States, is that as we moved from the early 1900s into the turn of the uh, the turn of the century, we had uh, a change from really an agricultural society where we had clear cut uh, for farming and really reduced the habitat that was available for white-tailed deer. Mm -hmm. And now the forest has grown back, and so the habitat available for deer has increased and so the population of deer here in Connecticut and all over the Northeast has really exploded and it's those deer that really contribute to the abundance or the numbers of the ticks that we see in an area and so um, has it been here? Yes, it's been here uh, but we've really created envir an environment now where we have lots of deer, we have lots of mice and small mammals and birds that also can carry the ticks and carry the disease-causing agents and then we're living in really close proximity to these habitats. Right. Yeah. So the mice, uh, without the deer population, the mice weren't as infected as they are now? Or? Well, so nobody was looking at the mice prior to this. Mm. Uh, so uh, we don't know. But uh, the thing about the mice is they're very important, uh, what we call reservoir hosts. So they carry the bacteria that causes Lyme disease and it circulates in their blood and um, and they can stay infected for their whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, with And so they can feed many ticks and transmit it. Uh, but the, the deer play a very important role as well because the deer uh, are the main host for the adult stage of the tick. And so the adult stage, like an adult female black-legged tick, can lay thousands of eggs after one blood meal on a deer. And so the deer really play this important role in increasing the population. Uh, so that adult stage isn't so often feeding on small mammals and birds. Mm -hmm. It's the immature stages that feed on them. So if we got rid of all the deer, we'd be better on <laughs> <laughs> Well, so there's a lot of talk about how we can manage deer to reduce disease. And there have been studies, um, particularly in geographically isolated settings like islands, where they've done experimental removal of deer, um, and in general have found you know, that they could reduce populations of ticks. But um, those studies were never conducted over you know, decades to see what happens later. Like, um, there's some evidence that those ticks may um, find alternative hosts to feed on. Um, and certainly in a mainland setting like where we are here in Danbury or in Ridgefield, uh, Connecticut, uh, removing the deer is a big challenge, right? Because it requires, you know, a lot of management and sustainability and expense to do that. Uh, and so there really haven't been any studies to, sh to show that we can remove deer on a large scale. Uh, from our communities on the mainland and reduce the ticks in a way that's going to reduce disease. Uh, 
However, there are other deer tactics. So, for example, there is a the USDA created a deer feeding station known as the four poster, and that actually attracts deer by feeding the deer. And while the deer are visiting the station, they uh, put their head through a roller that is treated with a, a tick killing pesticide, and it kills the ticks on the deer. And that has really shown some promising results in terms of tick management. But then there's all sorts of other issues that we have to think about when we think about feeding deer, um, spreading wildlife diseases, and putting pesticides out into the environment in a feeding station where it may be accessible to children um, and other non-target organisms. So we just, um, you know, I think there's some really promising interventions out there. We just, you know, we need more study. Mm-hmm. For sure. If you didn't have people to deal with, you could eradicate Lyme disease, right? And control things. <laughs> yeah, well, so with a lot of diseases that are transmitted by um, insects or, or arthropods like ticks, uh, humans tend to be what we call an accidental host. So these disease agents circulate in nature in what we call an enzootic cycle, and it's just going along doing what it does, and it tends not to kill those animals that it's infecting. Uh, and it's when we get in the way. Uh, that we become sick um, because we're not supposed to be part of that cycle. We're mm. we're accidental hosts. But politically, too, people don't like to think about getting rid of deer or putting pesticides out and things like oh, that. Oh yeah, so this is I think um, really the crux of of what we are now thinking about a lot, which is what not only what can we identify as effective tick management and Lyme disease prevention management. Um, tactics, but how are we going to get people to adopt and practice them? So, for example, I know you're interviewing us, but you said earlier, well, I garden and I think I'm immune. I've never gotten a tick-borne illness, and and I... That's what I believe. Yeah, well, right. So, but I think it's really interesting. I mean, I've met a lot of people um, around our communities that will say, yeah, I, you know, I've never really been bitten being bitten by a tick or I don't think there's any ticks in my yard or I, you know I just you know or I'm not really worried about it I've never seen a tick so I, I should be safe and so mm-hmm. I say to you Paul you know what is it going to take for you to start taking action when you're going out to garden or think about the landscape of your backyard because th- these are the things that we want to know you know what mm-hmm. are you going to practice what are you you know are you afraid of pesticides what why? Mm-hmm. And if so, what are those concerns so that we can try and figure out what the best way is to dispel myths or um, give you a variety of options so that you feel like you can pick the ones that are suitable to you? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So if somebody loves to sleep mm-hmm. with their dog in their bed mm-hmm. and they'll never give that up, you have to come up with some kind of a strategy for them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jennifer, would you say most of the people that you meet that have been that have uh, been affected by Lyme started out as people who thought, well, I've never seen a tick, so I've never, is, is that a common starting place for then ending up, you know, then being very sick? And Absolutely, you know. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a perfect example. I grew up in Connecticut. I loved jumping in the leaves. I loved being a Girl Scout, I love going to camp, all the wonderful outdoor activities. I moved my family back to Connecticut, uh, you know, when they were young to raise my girls the same way I'd grown up. And I had never seen a tick. I had never uh, imagined, you know, what this illness could be capable of. So 
Uh, I'm a perfect example of someone who felt a bit cavalier about it. Mm -hmm. And after illness struck our family, um, that's when I started Mm -hmm. to do the prevention, started to learn about prevention, and then have invested this um, level in my life to try and teach it. Because person after person uh, says to me at these events, if I'd only known, if I'd just Mm -hmm. known. And I felt the same way. I had learned about Lyme, but if I had only known, Mm -hmm. you know, more. Mm -hmm. And so I feel we owe it to the communities Mm -hmm. to um, make it very, very clear how serious these diseases can be and find ways to motivate them. And when I give people the toolbox at a BLAST event, I I make it very clear I'm not preaching and telling you what to do. I'm trying to show a full spectrum and you will make those choices for your family. And then you will, but I want everyone to know that based on those choices, what kind of... uh, reduced risk have they set up for themselves Mm -hmm. and what are their chances because if you think you're 100 percent protected because you're using a product and none of it is true um, that makes me really sad because you're putting you and your children at risk so Mm -hmm. our efforts i feel are, are to be very clear with people and say if you do this, this, and this, you'll have this sort of protection. Um, just be aware that you may still need to do, uh, you know, t- take a little more time with your tick check or some of the mm-hmm. things you're willing to do, your, mm-hmm. your showering. But absolutely, finding what people are willing to do, that's the key. And what people can afford, some of these measures. We try not to talk about things that are very expensive, but we know there's a cost involved in some of them. Um, you know, telling someone to re-landscape their yard, that's not only uh, dramatic, but it's expensive. Mm-hmm. So what, what are you willing to do, um, and how can we help you do more if you're interested? That's mm-hmm. the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as an entomologist, you know, I moved to Connecticut from out of state. I knew about Lyme disease, I knew about deer ticks, but I think, you know, I was fairly cavalier as well, even just, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, I'll check, I'll be fine. and. Um, it's, you know, again, knowledge is power, you know, being more aware, understanding, meeting more people that have been affected by Lyme. It certainly heightens your awareness, again, even as someone who I should should have probably known better. You know, mm-hmm. we've definitely been much more careful as a family, just the more I've learned. So, um, but again, I, I always point out, so Nita's been working with ticks for 20 years and you know she's out in the habit the habitat that's most prone to having ticks and she's trying to actively find the ticks and she's never had a tick-borne illness so these prevention measures which sometimes are going to be more extreme than the average person is willing to take like putting on a full body white suit and tucking your pants into your socks that are treated with a, a chemical called permethrin and checking yourself as soon as you leave that area um, some of those things might seem extreme but you know they're effective and again i, I always point that out that you know even someone who's in the the tickiest of the tick habitat <laughs> has has you know kept herself safe mm-hmm. and also we find um, you mentioned in people once they they are ill what are they willing to do it's it's very interesting when we do our we have done some surveys to see who's adapting what measures particularly where chemicals are concerned and there's no question folks who have contracted serious illness are uh, doing the, all these different things but may also be overdoing Mm. So that's another risk. We, are, mm-hmm. we want to be very uh, clear with the folks we're educating that more is not necessarily uh, better in some instances, mm. that you can accomplish your goal um, in a judicious manner 
because we want not only to protect them from tick attachments and possible illness, not every tick has illness in it, we have to remind people, but that we also have to care for our environment and be uh, conservative in how we use the products. Mm -hmm. We don't want resistance. We don't want uh, to make neighbors angry at neighbors for their practices. And so there's, there's a lot of balance here. And uh, again, knowledge is power. That is the point of uh, so much of what we do. We want people to be safe healthy in every respect. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're talking about pesticides. So some people don't like the idea of that, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't get rid of ticks by sprinkling mint leaves out of the yard, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. You have to really use, if you're gonna mm -hmm. try to um, keep ticks out of your yard, you have to use pesticides, right? Or that's one of the things that you might consider. Right, it's one of the things you can do. And I always, you know, my past being in an agricultural background, there's certainly a role for pesticides there. And I worked with pesticides quite a bit. And I always equate them to people who are feeling uncomfortable with pesticides as like pharmaceutical products. You know, you if you don't want to take, for example, too much Tylenol, that's actually extremely toxic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and you don't want to you know, take an antibiotic if you don't need one. And it's the same with a pesticide. You don't want to use it if you don't need it. You don't want to use it at the wrong time. You don't want to use it in the wrong place. And you don't want to use it in the incorrect amount. So it's a tool. It's a very effective tool when used when used correctly. And it's one of the few things that we truly know when used correctly actually can reduce tick populations. So it's it's again, knowledge is power, something to be aware of. Um, I but I think um, that gut reaction of being fearful, I understand it, but we're you know, we're trying to do a better job of of uh, of conveying the message of of what these these products can do if you're, you know, feeling scared to be in your yard. You know, we right. want to certainly, you know, we we want to be outdoors and enjoying our outdoor environment. So, if we can help people to feel safe doing that, that's certainly a, a, a goal we would like to to help do. Absolutely, that's a big part of our message. We're not trying to encourage anyone to stay indoors and not enjoy the beautiful Connecticut uh, landscape that we have mm. all moved here for. Um, but how can you do it safely? How can you send your children away to camp and feel confident that they're going to be healthy? And we love to tell people um, about the beautiful paved and cleared trails in Connecticut. And so many of our parks are um, landscaped in a way where the people can feel much more confident that they will be um, away from tick habitat. But if they go into an off-woods, deep-woods setting, here are the tips that you can do to keep yourself uh, tick-free to your best ability. And when you get home, here's what you do to make sure they, you know, any hitchhikers are removed quickly. So mm -hmm. I never want anyone to think we're suggesting people should stay indoors and avoid right. nature okay. because we've, we've proven mm -hmm. that that's essential uh, and, and there's no question right. there, but how to do it safely is the key. But around here, it's probably a little tougher than in maybe the Midwest or someplace where there's a lot of um, people who only eat organic here and vegans and all that kind of thing mm -hmm. who are very in touch with that part of um, the, uh, um, not culture, but their health, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a big challenge that we face because there's a lot of perception um, about uh, things like using a pesticide or chemical, whether it be uh, to spray your yard or to treat your skin or your clothing. 
that may, you know, not always be the correct conclusion. And as a result of this, and I think really um, businesses have really capitalized on the fear of uh, people or the um, the way that people are averse to, to using chemicals, uh, particularly in our area, where uh, they're promoting the use of natural or organic uh, repellents or tick control uh, options. And so, unfortunately, a lot of these options have not been well studied. It's kind of the Wild West because there's very little regulation of um, natural products and natural repellents. In fact, um, you know, the EPA doesn't require any data for effectiveness or even any registration for using, for making products that have um, certain minimal risk botanical, uh, you know, plant-based natural uh, ingredients in them. And so, um, you know, companies can market a product, a repellent, for example, to control ticks and mosquitoes, um, even if they haven't provided any really compelling evidence that they do, that they do. And so we really face this challenge now, particularly in this part of the country where people are really um, want to go organic or want to live a natural lifestyle. And I, I mean, I get it. I eat organic food and I keep chickens in my backyard. Um, but I also, when I think about preventing my family from being, um, from, you know, being bitten by a tick that can transmit not one, but five different things that can cause uh, us to get sick, um, I take, you know, my, I make my decisions very carefully. I want to know that um, there's evidence and studies that, that back up the claims of effective to control or, or being an effective repellent. And so this is really um, one of the big challenges we face right now, which is communicating the science of prevention to the, the members of our community so that they can make informed decisions and uh, not just believe everything they read on the internet or, you know, you can go on Amazon and buy a hundred different things to repel ticks on your body. and. Um, it's likely that many of them are not very effective. And so the end result of that is that we provide people or people who use products that may not be effective um, then are provided with a false sense of security and actually may you know, not take as many precautions mm -hmm. uh, like doing a tick check after they've spent time outside. Um, because they feel that they're protective. Same with you know, spraying their yard with a product that may not be effective they think they're protected and so they go out and they spend time in those risky habitats and, and then don't take measures later to ensure that indeed there is not a, you know, a tick upon them. So uh, this is really something we've been thinking about a lot lately and, and I think that um, you know, our work and the work of you know, tick prevention scientists across the country um, in the future is really going to be embracing this, you know, understanding or better understanding of human behavior. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And you research that you and Rita have been doing uh, over the last year or so that you started a year ago specifically was looking at some of the uh, steps people can take in their own backyards, right? To uh, And comparing action versus no action to see what kind of uh, how yeah. it sticks. So our work here um, since 2011 has uh, been uh, focused upon what people can do in their backyards to manage ticks and then we ask the question does this measure that we're using to manage ticks actually result in less human disease? Mm -hmm. And so we started with a study that um, 
evaluated spraying the yard, um, and then we evaluated using a rodent bait box for treating ticks on small mammals. Uh, and now the study that you're referring to is the backyard integrated tick management study, which we began in 2016 uh, with funding from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And so Rita joined us uh, then at the start of that study, coordinating the activities for this study. And so um, we are looking at an integrated approach to tick management in the backyard, uh, meaning we're using more than one method of tick control. That is a single pesticide application followed by uh, the application of um, these rodent bait boxes mm -hmm. to kill the ticks on rodents. Uh, and we're going to, we're in the, I guess we're in the second year of that study. So mm -hmm. the yards are treated for two years and then we're following everyone in the household to see if they have encounters with ticks and if they get diagnosed with a tick-borne illness. And so we hope to have more to share on that uh, later. Another piece of that study is to look at treating single yards versus treating clusters of neighbor uh, properties that are adjacent to one another because the mice really they run around you know beyond the uh, limits of one's property and so can we treat you know a population of small mammals that are carrying the in, the disease agents uh, by putting bait boxes you know at adjacent properties so we're trying to really answer the question of if more of a neighborhood approach will be um, effective for preventing human disease. So, mm -hmm. And if it proves effective, then uh, you have that whole human uh, interaction thing again, getting all the neighbors, say, to participate. And yeah, I mean, just mm -hmm. recruiting. I mean, Rita can really speak to this. Recruiting for this study um, you know, has had its challenges, and I could see how moving forward, if it is effective, getting you know, clusters of neighbors to, to treat could be, could be a challenge as well. Yeah, but it, it's something we need to understand. You know, we need to know, is there a benefit? And again, mm -hmm. it goes back to making sure people have like the full scope of information. And, and generally, this new approach with this study, so this builds on two past studies that, that Nita mentioned. So, you know, looking at just doing a spray and then looking at just doing a, a, a bait box, a rodent targeted bait mm -hmm. box. And then this study, again, is integrating those two methods. And so the big advantage is there's two different things happening treating two different tick life stages at two different times of the season. Um, because again, the past research has shown these things are effective, but not effective enough to, to show a demonstrated uh, reduction in disease in the human population. And so um, in general, in tick management, there's a new trend towards being interested in these integrated approaches. And there's some other studies going on right now as well um, in other states also looking at this. So. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard because science takes time, and we want to just know what works, and we have to take a progressive approach where we we kind of try one thing at a time, and we inch forward in in coming up with better better management approaches. So, what we think in 2020, as of end of 2020, we'll we'll have some some news <laughs> on how this approach works. So it takes time, but. Um, you know, the way that Nita designed the study, it's, it's being done in the right way. So um, we'll be able to say, yes, this is a good approach, or, well, <laughs> we need to try the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, but we will have more information. Yeah, so studies like these are, they're complicated because we don't want to, um, 
influence what people do. So everyone enrolled in the study either gets the actual treatment or they get a placebo. So we'll have the tick control company go out and actually spray water rather than spraying the pesticide so that the homeowner doesn't know what they received. Right. Um, and so instead of a treated bait box, the placebo properties will get a bait box that doesn't have the treatment in it, but they're still placed in the same way around the property. And so that's just one example of how um, you know complex these studies are because we really have to control for many things. Um, for example, we didn't enroll properties that had been already treating for ticks with a pesticide, so that we didn't have some you know influence of that past tick control on our approach. And if you had a deer fence, you couldn't be in the study. Um, and so there's there's a lot that goes into a study like this um, and we try to control for as many things as we can which is really hard when you're out in backyards we can't you know change what people's landscapes look like and the size of their property and things like that so uh, we um, you know we've designed that study to really try to control for as much as we can to see if we can keep people from getting sick so hopefully we'll be sitting at a podcast in a couple of years and can tell you all about it right. <laughs> So I think it's interesting that uh, here you have uh, kind of this confluence of, um, you know, you've been working on this since 2011. You could have gone to other universities. You have a lot of interest in Ridgefield, so they're uh, willing to put resources into education. And uh, there happens to be, uh, you know, Connecticut has a lot of Lyme disease. So uh, um, it's... Uh, just kind of a nice, uh, not coincidence, I guess, but uh, you know, it's great that all this is coming together and uh, for this good research and good work, right? Don't you feel that way? Oh, of course I feel that way. <laughs> I mean, I think that we're really situated nicely here um, with our university, really in the heart of you know, tick land. Uh, and I call it tick land with my family. My kids are not allowed to go you know, traipsing through tick land without protecting themselves. But we, we really are located in a highly endemic area for tick-borne illness. Uh, Fairfield County has the most number of cases reported each year uh, of tick-borne illness. Uh, and, you know, uh, the town of Ridgefield and, and Jennifer uh, has, has been a longtime partner on tick-borne disease prevention efforts, even from before I joined the faculty here at Western. Um, we've been working together for a long time, and I, I think what's really nice about being here located near each other is we can really, you know, continue to foster that relationship and grow that partnership because we're, you know, we're doing the research, but then we really need those boots on the ground, um, which is where Jennifer comes in and, and her program really with this grassroots effort of disseminating our findings into the public and promoting uh, prevention. Unfortunately, um, you know, there's been really limited funding for Lyme and other tick-borne disease prevention education programs throughout the state and really throughout the country. And so, you know, Jennifer is one person who has been, you know, doing this, a lot of it on a volunteer basis to really promote the prevention message. Uh, so, uh, you know, we need we need many more Jennifers out <laughs> there um, because, you know, she can cover Ridgefield and, and go to surrounding towns as is possible, but, you know, she can't cover all of the Northeast or even all of Connecticut. And, and so we, you know, we hope we can have more partners and more of our public health agencies, you know, 
giving resources towards this problem because it, it is a problem and, and we need to spend some more effort uh, in prevention because you hear, I mean, if you search Lyme disease on the internet or you hear people talking about it, they talk a lot about diagnosis and treatment and their stories of illness and their terrible you know, experiences with um, tick-borne illness. And so I really hope that in the, you know, in the next few years, we're really gonna see a shift towards um, more discussion of prevention so that we don't have to have so many discussions about diagnosis and treatment later. Um, you know, because if we can just prevent people uh, mm -hmm. from getting tick bites, we really can, can stop or at least lessen those conversations and I think that's a goal. You know, also being here in, in Fairfield County, we have been able to partner with other agencies uh, such as um, other local health departments as well as the Western Connecticut Health Network uh, on prevention activities and, and research activities. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's great. I think that uh, we have um, agencies and community members who are pretty engaged and so we look forward to growing that network and that you know the that network of collaboration that we have in the area mm -hmm. so you know one thing that I think is interesting that even people who aren't um, afraid of insects mm -hmm. think about ticks and they think they're repulsive and awful but I've heard you need to talk about how your admiration for ticks oh, yeah. <laughs> well so okay I know people find that strange but mm -hmm. if you really think about this tiny little organism that has really highly evolved to be an excellent vector of disease a vector is this you know creature that can transmit disease agents uh, it's pretty impressive I mean this tick can survive through very cold temperatures and not just here in Connecticut but um, you know, under the snow cover and cold temperatures of, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And they can uh, evade a host immune system. They can go and bite a host and go undetected by blocking your ability to d detect it. Um, and these ticks are, they only feed three times in their life, once mm -hmm. during each life stage. And when they feed, they have to stay attached for several days. And so an adult tick will stay uh, attached for about a week on a host. And to go undetected, um, and they grow to about the size of you know a raisin, uh, is pretty impressive. On top of that, they can attach themselves very well to uh, their host. They have uh, a feeding tube that is barbed like a fish hook, so it goes in easily, but it doesn't come out easily. Um, and they also secrete this cement substance in their saliva that helps them attach to their host so that they don't get groomed off or easily removed. So if you've ever had a tick on you and you've tried to remove it, you can see how very difficult it is. And those are just um, adaptations that this tick has, you know, acquired over you know many many generations to really make it able to survive and reproduce and so if you can look at it from a biological standpoint um, and admire it as a you know a living creature that is highly adapted to its environment and to its lifestyle you can't help well I can't help but be really <laughs> impressed and hopefully, aren't you impressed now? I am. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying everyone should have pet ticks and no. you know, um, pictures of them on their wall, um, but you can. 
Yeah, you do, right? You have well, it yeah, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can get you one mm-hmm. if you'd like. Uh, yeah, that would be good. Okay, great. You can't tell any of my workmates mm-hmm. or my family, though. So <laughs> can I ask you, Paul, have you yes. been, um, so when you go out and do your gardening out in the yard and yard work, do you, um, when you come in, are you thinking about that you may have a tick upon you and, and do you take preventive action? Yes, I do. Oh. Actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> and my wife got sick with uh, babesiosis. Oh. Mm-hmm. It wasn't good. No. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. And the treatment wasn't good either. Yeah. So babesia is really um, interesting. It's um, an emerging infection uh, that we've really just recognized in, in the last, you know, 20 years as being a problem in the northeastern U.S. And uh, this Babesia is a it's a parasite of our red blood cells, hmm. and in fact, it's it acts very much like malaria hmm. uh, that's transmitted by the mosquito. And uh, babesia it will infect red blood cells, and the way that it works is it actually uh, it bursts the red blood cells. And so people who are infected with babesia will get these cycles of really high fever and chills, and then they become anemic from all these red blood cells being destroyed in their body. And so babesia is very, it's a dangerous parasite. And I think we don't talk about it as much because there are more cases of Lyme disease, um, far more cases of Lyme disease. But people who get babesia get very, very sick and, and hospitalized. And it's and it's a, it's a major... Uh, disease agent of concern because it also can infect the blood supply. Uh, and so when people are donating blood, you know, screening for Babesia is, is one um, additional concern that um, there is because if you live in an area where there could be Babesia, um, you know, we worry about that infecting the blood supply and infecting others. And that disease actually can be extremely dangerous for people who are immune compromised and particularly mm-hmm. people who don't have spleens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, we do see, we do tend to see more severe illness in people who, who are compromised in that way. But very healthy young individuals have also gotten Babesia. And so I'm sorry you had that experience. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine it, it wasn't great. I hope she's doing better. She is. Okay, great. And it- we were pretty aware already, and um, but it definitely made us not want to ever get a tick-borne disease mm-hmm. anywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to mention, too, um, that we've been telling folks about doing tick checks to avoid the illnesses, but I want to remind everyone that in Connecticut, if you do remove a tick and do remove it with fine-tip tweezers and place it into a little plastic vial or a Ziploc, you can bring it into your local health department, the town you live in. Mm-hmm. And these are submitted through the health department to the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station for testing. And they will be testing for Lyme, Babesia, that Nita just mentioned, and Anaplasma. And this is a wonderful opportunity for not only your family to find out what was in the tick of a family uh, uh, that was attached to a family member, but also for our state to keep track of these diseases. It has to be a tick removed from a person, not a pet, and it has to be engorged for them to actually Mm. test it. And engorged means filled with blood um, or to a certain level, having blood in it. If it's just been walking on you or it's on your pet, then they won't um, be Mm. bothered. Those you should just uh, dispose of. But I I think it's a terrific... um, service that the state is providing and the fact that the testing is free. Some towns do have a little service charge for submitting minimal, but uh, it's it's free for the actual testing. And Danbury has begun uh, testing the ticks submitted to the Danbury Health Department, which I'm thrilled about. Mm-hmm. It's a way to be involved in the solution, right? Not just complain about it or feel bad about it or scared, but to uh, 
well, lead you, to... And, and you get good information back hmm. to, to yourself uh, about the tick. It doesn't mean that any tick that's infected that you necessarily contracted the illnesses right. that were in that tick. But if you did develop some symptoms and your physician is trying to match up what's going on with you medically and uh, figure out. Sometimes it's a diagnostic dilemma. You might not get a bullseye. And actually, Lyme disease is the only one that um, does present in the arrhythmia migrans rash that we've mm-hmm. you know, come to know as uh, definitive of Lyme disease. Not everyone gets it. Unfortunately, I wish they did. But um, you know, the other co-infections, you might not develop that rash and still you know, not be right. aware that you had the disease. So if the tick had the disease is in it, you have symptoms, your physician can get all that information through the tick testing. It's just a wonderful way to speed up diagnosis because mm-hmm. again, early treatment uh, makes all the difference. Right. Mm-hmm. So to uh, spread awareness and create awareness, it would be a good idea, wouldn't it, if you had a mascot or something to um, <laughs> tell people about this? It would be, and we will have one. Oh. <laughs> and what's it look like? Well, you'll just have to wait till it's unveiling, but uh, we are in the process of uh, creating our new uh, tick mascot, who will be an adult female black-legged tick, and uh, we look forward to introducing her to Mm. the Western community and Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the region. Are you going to make one of your biology students wear it? Oh, I cannot say. (laughs) It will be a mystery. It's a mystery. Uh, I will all be a mystery. I'm too short. (laughs) Actually, you're not. (laughs) That's true. We made sure it could fit short to medium (laughs) and tall people. But we we hope that having a recognizable character will be able to um, help promote our prevention messages uh, and this mascot actually is going to help us with our upcoming um, video education project which we are creating in partnership with the BLAST program and Jennifer and Western's uh, Media Services uh, with uh, a Healthy Communities grant from the Environmental Protection Agency and so we hope that that including our tech character in this project is going to really help people um, remember what they mm-hmm. can and should do for for prevention. You're kind of making uh, Westcon and Danbury and the Western Connecticut the the region uh, the center of the tick universe. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I could only yeah. hope. I mean, Yay. tick prevention, <laughs> tick prevention universe. Mm-hmm. We don't, I don't think anyone would be happy if we said we were the center of the tick universe. But mm-hmm. certainly, uh, we hope that we can. Um, continue uh, successful efforts at understanding how to keep people from getting sick. Um, And sometimes you just have to think, I think, a little bit outside the box um, to be memorable and to be effective in your messaging. And, and, um, you know, we're just going to keep trying new things to see what we can get to stick. Because things like tucking your pants in your socks theoretically very effective, but we know now from several studies that we can't get people to do it. Hmm. Um, so we're, we're still, we're still Why, trying. Because it looks dorky? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. We don't actually, I think that's what we hear, that it looks mm-hmm. dorky. Um, I'm not afraid of looking dorky, but mm-hmm. um, some people are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it looks pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Which Safety probably. is always cool. Right? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I see a motto in here. Yeah. So you'll be busy the rest of your careers, right? Uh, for because this isn't going to ha- uh, go away next year or the next five years or 
decades, right? It's going to be an ongoing process. Well, you know, so I think that we are going to be talking about, you know, Lyme and black-legged tick-transmitted diseases for a long time in the in the Northeast, but I think we also are going to be talking a lot about diseases that are transmitted by insects and arthropods in general. Uh, we know from this last year's experience with Zika that um, you know organisms that suck blood can transmit diseases, and um, these organisms are emerging throughout our nation and as our climate is changing the spread of these organisms is of concern particularly when we see you know mosquitoes and ticks moving into areas where they previously were not so we face this additional challenge of you know figuring out where where these ticks and mosquitoes are uh, who's at risk and then educating whole new populations of people to try and help them prevent uh, prevent disease and I think unfortunately you know there has been sort of a not a very large public health entomology workforce and so you know when there's something like Zika hits and we you know need to respond there there's a limit to what you know we can do mm-hmm. as a country so I, I think we'll be talking about ticks in the future but we'll be talking about a lot of other you know disease transmitting right. biting arthropods well, that's good because it's good content for our podcast. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> people just, oh, yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> so we'll have you back then. Okay. And uh, learn about the results of the study and other things, too, I think, along the way as uh, talking about prevention. We do want to talk about the 12th Annual Freedline Connection Patient Conference and Health Fair. Jennifer, that's going to be on May 17th, right? Right, right, right here on the West Side campus in the ballroom at the Student Center. And Lyme Connection is the patient uh, affiliated task force that Ridgefield has started, um, actually started in 2003. Hmm. And while the BLAST program is our uh, prevention directed effort, uh, the rest of the organization really focuses on patient support, education, and events like this are how, uh, hopefully, we won't need them once we get the prevention message out there far enough. But at this point, uh, patients are looking for information. And so uh, at this 12th event, Dr. Stephen Phillips, Dr. Neil Spector, Dana Parrish uh, will be speaking. And we have uh, an award going to Lou Leone from Fox 5, who hmm. did uh, an Emmy-winning series on the disease. And it brings together about 30 exhibitors for a health fair focused on Lyme-related products and professionals. And once a year, it's an opportunity for people who've been stricken to come together with uh, their family members and friends and just interested community members. You don't have to be a patient and learn more about the patient side of what's going on uh, with this group of illnesses. Now, we've expanded from just Lyme to tick-borne and... uh, just, just a, it's a, it's a wonderful gathering, and it began actually as a, a project. Uh, I was an HPX major, and it mm-hmm. started here at the university. Um, That's with, right. You're an alum. Of I am an alum, and I grew out of uh, one of the projects that we had done there, and so I'm really pleased to have kept it going at uh, mm-hmm. at Westcon and have. Uh, this turned into the 12th annual event. It's, mm. it's pretty amazing. And you get about four hundred people show up. Right, three four hundred people come from last year 12 states in Canada. Mm. So it's got quite a quite a draw. And um, they have ticks in Canada. Unfortunately, they've mm. snuck up there. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm I'm 
always pleased to, to work with that we have the blast display set up we talk lots about prevention and hear people's stories and uh, and as I mentioned it's a it's part of a it's a town of Ridgefield committee lime connection and mm-hmm. our uh, town has really been a big supporter in, in trying to promote every aspect of what can be helpful to relieving uh, the burden that this illness puts on mm-hmm. Fairfield so County. That's May 17th, and if people want to find more for about BLAST, they can go to a website? Right. Two websites actually have information. The Ridgeville Health Department website, you can go to BLASTLime.org, and you will go there. Or on the on LimeConnection.org website, you can find out about BLAST and also about all the other programs such as this one coming up on May 17th, um, support groups. There's going to be a library event in Ridgefield with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, an author um, Mm. who's written a new book on uh, Lyme disease, uh, the first epidemic of global warming, and that'll be in June. So all those events, and we uh, we always make everything free uh, with these programs. There's never a charge because we want, whether it's prevention or patient support, we want everyone to have access. And, of course, Nita and Rada and the Tick-Borne Disease Prevention Laboratory are all over the website at wcsu.edu. Mm-hmm. So you can find more information there, too, right? Absolutely. And if you want to know more about the backyard tick study that we talked about, you can go to www.backyardtickstudy.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Good. And we also have a um, Western Connecticut State University Tick-Borne Disease Laboratory Facebook site where when things come up that are of note or um, you know new research comes out uh, we try to to periodically update or if something we find something interesting in the field um, our, our students will will take a, a photo and and we'll try to add it on that site as well so if uh, you want to keep up with the day-to-day activities of, of Nita's lab that's a good place to mm-hmm. uh, to join in please do join mm-hmm. us good so thanks for devoting yourself to this and to sharing it with us here on the podcast on WCSU 411. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who make sure these podcasts get broadcast to the entire world. When you find WCSU 411 on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, Please consider subscribing so you can keep up with all the news about WestCon. After you subscribe, leave a comment there or on Twitter at WCSU411. Until the next edition, this is Paul Steinmetz.